Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Biography. Today I'm speaking with Brian Dimitrovic, Richard S. Strong Scholar at the Laffer Center. Brian's recently published book is The Emergence of Arthur Laffer, The Foundations of Supply-Side Economics in Chicago and Washington from 1966 to 1976. It is an an exploration of the intellectual development and the economic environment surrounding one of the 20th century's most politically influential economists. Brian, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. It's great to be here, Cal. Thank you for having me. Of course. Before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you'd just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Yeah, uh, I'm a historian. I have a PhD in history. Uh, and I was in academia for a long time, for about uh, oh, about 20 years. I was a, a tenure-track, a, ten- a full professor of history at Sam Houston State University in Texas, where I spent 16 years. And I've spent most of my career writing about the history of supply-side economics. So I've written or edited uh, six books, uh, beginning in 2009, a book on the history of supply-side economics. And I've read a book uh, uh, with Larry Kudlow on the history of the Kennedy tax cut, and uh, just recently a history of the income tax with Arthur Laffer himself and Gene Sinkfield, a dimensional fund advisors. And um, this book that I'm writing that we're talking about today is actually uh, the first of two. I'm going to write a subsequent volume uh, called Curvaceous Arthur Laffer and Political Economy, and it will go from 1976 to 2020. For those who aren't familiar, uh, could you tell us a little about who Arthur Laffer is and why you found him uh, so intriguing uh, to, to write two books about him? Yeah, sure. Arthur Laffer uh, was one of the were the two real founders of what we call, came to be known as supply-side economics, or the kind of anti-Keynesian uh, free market alternative to economic policy that developed in the 1970s and then, then was, was quite roundly embraced by Ronald Reagan as he took office as president of the United States in 1981. And uh, supply-side economics emphasized uh, how tax rate cuts and gold standard-like money uh, can rescue the economy out of crises like stagflation. And it was Arthur Laffer and his colleague at the University of Chicago, Robert Mundell, who really kind of seeded this movement in the 1970s. And I I became interested in this in the 2000s when I was preparing my first book on the history of supply-side economics, and I got to know Arthur Laffer then by interviewing him. And since then, we've become very good friends, and now I, I work at his center. What was Arthur Laffer's, uh, Arthur Laffer's childhood like? Uh, what was he destined to become an economist? Yeah, that's interesting. I actually am, am, am quite curious about some kind of old-fashioned sociology behind uh, Arthur Laffer and the supply-side revolution. So Arthur Laffer is a kind of unique individual growing up in that he was, he was the son of a Fortune 500 CEO. And a, and a pretty high society mother, too, uh, William and Amelia Laffer. His father in Cleveland uh, was the CEO of Clevite Corporation, which is a pretty serious defense contractor at for, for, uh, Fortune Magazine, for CS company every year from 1955 on, and Laffer was the CEO. So uh, Arthur Laffer grew up in a, an environment of wealth and privilege, but, in, but also achievements. Um, his family had an academic bent. They had, you know, brain surgeons in their uh, pedigree. Um, but I think they were a little skeptical of kind of uh, the, the the intellectual life as as calling. And I, I think that that reflects itself in Arthur Laffer's own career. He was a, he was a bit cantankerous as an academician, and he, he ended up leaving it for kind of more practical pursuits. What was his time at Yale like, uh, and how did he eventually find his way to studying economics? Yeah, so uh, Arthur Laffer went to prep school and at the university. School, a very serious uh, prep school in um, in Cleveland, 
and his his father and uh, a lot of his relatives had gone to Yale and been at Branford College. And Cleveland was part of the Western Reserve of Connecticut back when the, the city was founded uh, by Moses Cleveland. So there's a big Yale connection with Cleveland. And so he went there and he enrolled in the, in the College of Engineering, um, which is partially on the insistence of his father because his father you know, was CEO of an engineering firm, a manufacturing firm. And uh, it, it did not go well uh, for Arthur Laffer in the Yale College of Engineering. Uh, he said that his university school education kind of carried him, but the public school kids were pretty good at the technical fields. And uh, he had to take a year off uh, at the insistence of the dean. And he went uh, and had some internships at some of his father's companies in Europe for a year. And it's at, at the University of Munich, that where he took Fultz and Betriebsbirtschaft, that he became interested in economics and he came back to Yale. And completed college then in five years and decided to major in economics. What were some of his early mentors and intellectual heroes? Yeah, so he didn't like too many of the Yale faculty members. He didn't uh, he didn't cotton to Jim Tobin, who returned to the Yale faculty after a stint in the Kennedy Council of Economic Advisors, nor to Arthur Oaken, who became uh, LBJ's uh, CEA chair. Um, he liked Stanley Angerman. Uh, who was his uh, senior year tutor. Um, but aside from that, he was, uh, you know, he was a little skeptical uh, about the faculty members. And there was some, I, I think I think there was some old, old-fashioned also wasp snobbery there, uh, is that the, um, the, the elite was never too impressed by the teachers that it hired and paid. I, I think you, you see that in some of this, uh, th we have to remember, this is the highest ascendancy of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, I mean, the late 50s and the early 60s. And uh, they still had these attitudes. So I, I, I don't think they let themselves be impressed by uh, by intellectuals. You, you talk about how, um, you know, Arthur Laffer, though he doesn't, uh, I can't remember exactly if you said that he doesn't remember it exactly, that JFK gave a speech. And mm -hmm. JFK uh, famously, once he entered the White House, was very influenced by the new economists. So would you talk about that sort of uh, intellectual environment that uh, Laffer was being educated in. Yeah, sure. So uh, there's, uh, there's really, I don't think any question that Arthur Laffer did attend uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, June 1962 uh, Yale University commencement address. It's actually one one of the most famous and important speeches of the Kennedy presidency. It's the one in which he really kind of outlines his final economic policy, as, as he called it, the speech of a high monetary policy that would defend the dollar. In a, um, I forget exactly Kennedy's term. He didn't say maybe a loose fiscal policy that that quickly f became uh, his permanent tax cut that he outlined in August 1962. Uh, now I should say I wrote a book on this particular economic policy of Kennedy with Larry Kudlow, JFK, and the Reagan Revolution. I mean, I disagree with the mass of kind of scholarly consensus that the the Yale Kane that the Keynesians. Um, really had any sway over Kennedy. I don't think the documentary record uh, indicates that. Uh, I think that uh, you know Walter Heller's role, for example, is grossly over exaggerated. I think that Douglas Dillon, his Treasury Secretary, was much more influential in the very structure of Kennedy's tax cut, his signature achievement legislatively as president, uh, was clearly non-Keynesian in, in that it was a marginal permanent tax rate cut. And you can't have a marginal cut in progressive tax rates and call it Keynesian. It's by definition the opposite of Keynesianism. So Arthur Laffer saw that speech and everything, but he didn't he didn't have in germ um, any kind of 
anti-Keynesian notions at that point, even though he was skeptical of Jim Tobin. And I will say this about his mentors, and he admits it, he flirted with leftism a little bit. When he went to Stanford the next year, he really liked his Marxist professor, Paul Baran, of famous Baran and Sweezy fame. And he said for, for a moment there, he flirted a little bit with uh, Marxism, and he thinks it was just you know, being romantic. Could you talk about this this period of time when he was in graduate school? Uh, because I, I thought something that was really interesting that you pointed out is that part of um, you know Laffer's maybe uh, unorthodoxy when it came to uh, you know the, the monetarist versus the Keynesian tradition is that he had this Marxist training in a way. Um, so could you talk about that? His kind of divergent perspectives from the from the mainstream in the sense. Yeah, I'll tell you what he really took away from from Paul Baran. So Paul Bar Arthur Laffer knew Paul Baran, which uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with. I mean, he wrote a pretty widely read book called The Political Economy of Growth and uh, with with, um, with Paul Sweezy, Monopoly Capital. Uh, and w so Arthur Laffer knew Paul Baran in the last months of his life. In the, in, the, in the fall quarter of 1963, he took a course with him at Stanford University when Arthur Laffer was an MBA student, a business student. Then Paul Baran died the following March, and Arthur Laffer actually gave some remarks at his funeral. So what he really liked about Baran, and they they bonded a bit over Germany, and Arthur Laffer spoke pretty good German at that point, having just returned from Germany. Um, Arthur Laffer really liked how Baran emphasized we need a lot of production, just production, production, production. Now it has to be good production. You know, it can't just be tail fin cars and elegantly packaged foods that quote John Kenneth Galbraith, but it's you know. That's one thing that, the, that Karl Marx loved. He loved the industrial relation of production because it overwhelmed the kingdom of necessity. You know, they had that, that kingdom of, that, that, that realm of freedom in, in the Marxian terminology that arises when you conquer the kingdom of necessity. And, and Arthur Laffer liked that from Paul Varane because like, he's really emphasizing, emphasizing a lot of supply. And he said that, that always stuck with him and that's somewhere near the heart of what, what first impelled supply side economics. Laffer came of age as an economist during the the era of the bread and wood system. Uh, I was wondering if you, if you could talk a little bit about this system and how Laffer thought about it. Yeah, so one of the one of the major themes I sought to get across in this book is that it is about the Bretton Woods system. That is the topic of this book. Uh, it's not about really tax rates because that was a later enthusiasm of Arthur Laffer. Uh, when he came of age as an economist in the 1960s and through the early 1970s, his almost singular focus was on saving the Bretton Woods system. Um, and he only came to taxation as a secondary matter because of his failure, actually, to save the Bretton Woods system. So the Bretton Woods system refers to a system of fixed exchange rates that prevailed uh, from 1944 to 1971, call it, uh, in which there was a, a gold anchor. The United States dollar uh, was defined and redeemable in gold to foreign monetary authorities. And that was so if those authorities uh, maintained a very close fixed exchange rate to the dollar. And if they wanted to, they could fix the gold themselves uh, independently. And that was the system uh, that prevailed. And Arthur Laffer loved it uh, for, for one reason, because it was cool on the auspices of this system. And so he said, uh, you got to be careful about throwing out that bathwater of Bretton Woods because you're going to throw out the baby as well of economic growth. You mentioned at the at the outset that he's he's seen as one of the fathers of supply side economics. So I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about um, you know his uh, his views on supply side economics, what that sort of entails, and then even just connecting it with that environment of the Bretton Woods system. Sure. 
So supply-side economics is, is only a term that is coined probably in 1976 by uh, a future friend of his, Jude Winiski, an editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal. And it's uh, going to refers to uh, the conservative opposition to Keynesianism, which is often shorthanded as demand-side economics. Uh, so supply-side economics uh, classically uh, has one major policy prescription, and, th and that is tax rate cuts. Not simply tax cuts, like you know, we're going to lessen taxation in some form. You know, the gasoline tax is going to go down or something like that. But when, when there's a progressive income tax rate structure, those rates particularly at the top go down. And the reason that the, the, uh, the, the term supply attaches to this is because those at the top of the income scale have the least so-called propensity to consume in the Keynesian language, but the, the greater propensity to save and invest. And so therefore, if you prioritize that specific kind of tax cut, you more than any more than anything else, you're going to be addressing the matter of increasing supply. So uh, now that would be a development in Arthur Laffer's career in the mid-70s, the very tail end of this book. Uh, but he came to that through his experience in the Bretton Woods system and what he saw in the in Bretton Woods is a hotel in New Hampshire, 1944, where the agreement for fixed exchange rate in the U.S. anchoring gold was kind of agreed upon. It was to tamp out. I should say blessed because it was the status quo since 1934. But um, Laffer found that once the Bretton Woods system was gone, nobody knew what the dollar was worth and nobody wanted to invest. That's probably had stagflation. And so then you had to kind of reintroduce investment to the economy after you got rid of the gold standard by tax rate cuts at the top. So, you know, Laffer has been, and this is even the title, uh, is associated very prominently with the Chicago School um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what his time was like uh, at Chicago and, you know, maybe just pepper in a little bit about what his relationships were like with other Chicago school luminaries like Robert Mundell, Ronald Coase, Milton Friedman, George Stigler, Eugene Fama. You can address whoever or, or add names that I didn't mention. Sure. Yeah. So Arthur Laffer got his Yale BA in 1963, his Stanford MBA in 1970, in 1965, and his Stanford economics uh, PhD in 1972. It's a weird chronology because he became a tenure track professor of business economics at the University of Chicago in 1967. And then he won tenure at Chicago in the, 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 the business school in economics on their economics faculty in 1969. And that was three years before he received his PhD. He was a, he was an, a tenured associate professor at the Graduate School of Business at the University of Chicago. Okay. That may be a story for later uh, about how he pulled that clever trick with mirrors, uh, getting tenure uh, before he did PhD. But he had a a very eventful time as a member of the economics establishment at Chicago at it, at the very apex of what we today might call the Chicago School. Now, without any question, his closest friend was probably the greatest intellectual light there on that faculty, and that was Robert Mundell, the 1999 Nobel Laureate in Economics. And it was Mundell and Laffer who really merged their economics together on first meeting at Laffer's job top in Chicago in the spring of 1967. And then they were they were basically inseparable until Mundell left the faculty in 1971. Um, now, he knew Milton Friedman very well, and he became good friends with Milton Friedman, but they sparred constantly. 
on currency policy. Milton Friedman was a big advocate of getting rid of the gold standard. Arthur Laffer was not, and they sparred intellectually on that. He was very close to Al Harberger, and it remains inexplicable, I think, that Al Harberger is the one member of the Chicago faculty of that time who has not won a Nobel Prize. He's still alive. He still has a chance. And it was the deadweight loss concept of Al Harberger's that was central to Laffer's conception of the Laffer curve in 1974. He had a holy rivalry with Harry Johnson, uh, who was the international exchange rate economist. And Johnson um, responded uh, by copying some of Laffer's ideas with full justification because Laffer would write things and then refuse to publish them. Um, and Johnson would say, well, if you don't want to publish it, I will. Uh, and it, in certain cases, some, some of Johnson's most important publications, he he lifted from Laffer, but I kind of argue in the book with full justification because Arthur Laffer was acting strange. He'd write these things and get them accepted by the AER, but then not submit the the the, the final article, almost, I think, out of snobbery on his own part. Um, so, yeah, and then Gene Fama, he worked with. Uh, he co-authored a couple articles in the American Economic Review with Gene Fama. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was a big riotous time. And I don't know, I, I have a kind of funny relationship with economics. I... I still think even for all those Chicago, all those success stories of Chicago, I still don't know if it worth a hill of beans. I don't know that all of that discussion about economics was productive of anything. Um, and that's something I always kind of fight through through these books. I don't think ultimately economics is very useful personally. And I, I look at all the activity in Chicago and I have a very hard time identifying why all of that argumentation was productive of anything. Beyond just the, the argumentation, whether or not we can uh, you know, say if it was productive, if they came up with, with good solutions, clearly that, you know, they won a lot of awards. Um, but you know, they, they, one thing that, that is certain is that they were very, very politically influential. Do you have a sense as to, was it just that these were a lot of outsized personalities who were really great at wrapping up their, their ideas and, it, it, you know, into, uh, into policy, uh, or, or was it, was it something else? major figure at Chicago, and that was that was his hiring dean. So uh, Arthur Laffer, the dean at the business school who hired Arthur Laffer in 1967 was George P. Schultz, who, of course, uh, was an enormously influential political figure, you know, first as uh, in the Nixon administration, then as Ronald Reagan's secretary of state. But, but George Schultz, I think, was kind of to, to that manner born. He really wasn't a natural academic, even though he was a full professor of business, had an MIT PhD. Um, Milton Friedman turned out to be remarkably adept at insinuating himself into the political process. Now, it was certainly George Schultz who conveyed Milton Friedman to Richard Nixon in 1969. And Friedman, you know, kind of spent a lot of time uh, in the Nixon White House and around Nixon. I know that uh, Edward Nelson, uh, Milton Friedman's biographer, uh, takes some issue with my interpretation of how influential Milton Friedman was. Uh, he, I think Edward. Nelson thinks I exaggerate uh, Friedman's influence on, on Nixon, but I think I'm reading the sources correctly. Uh, Milton Friedman made sure to stay around the Nixon White House as much as he could, even, even as he protested Nixon's policies about being too statist. Uh, so Friedman really kept an eye on being involved. Um, across the board, though, I don't know so much. I mean, Mundell ended up being quite influential in policy in terms of the Reagan revolution. Um, and he did not have a personality at all for uh, maintaining influence in Washington. He was uh, easily kind of bullied. He was uh, 
He demanded kind of silence when he talked and deferential behavior from his auditors, his listeners. Um, and I think it was Laffer who actually was more adept in those circles, and he was able to bring Mundell in in certain situations and, and make him influential. Um, maybe some of the others were influenced. I think Gene Fama and Mert Miller, I mean, those guys were made by their students. Their students took their ideas and made billion-dollar companies. Well, my co-author, Jeannie Singfield, with her husband, Rex, I mean, they made defensional fund advisors that, that manages $600 billion today, and that was all, that was all, they just took right out of the classroom what they were learning from Gene Fama and, and Mert Miller. So, um, Oh, there's one other figure, Fisher Black. Uh, he became a good friend of Arthur Laffer's, and and he, you know, he did a lot to revolutionize the markets. After Chicago, Laffer worked for the government in the Office of Management and Budget. Can you can you talk about his his experience there? Sure. Now, I am going to point out that it was during his Chicago time that he worked at the OMB, and that ends up being quite a weird distinction because. Uh, he had a really good time at Chicago his first few years, 67, 68, 69, and that's when he got tenure, only after two years on, on the tenure track. And then he went to Nixon for two years, and he came back, and everyone at Chicago was, was, hated him. <laughs> and he had to leave be, just because it was so frosty. So there's a weird story. Yes, George Schultz, uh, who, was secretary of the, who was the dean at Chicago's business school, who hired Laffer, joined the Nixon administration in 1969, so two years after he had hired Laffer, and he was the labor secretary. And then one year later, Nixon transferred him to be the first uh, head of the Office of Management and Budget, which uh, became that institution in that year, 1970. And that's when Schultz called up Laffer and said, would you like to be my chief economist? And Laffer said, sure. And he did it for two years. Um, the, the big thing that happened uh, is that Arthur Laffer started working on an economic model of the economy that fall of 1970. And uh, he ran the Council of Economic Advisors economic forecast through that model and then justified their aspirational number for economic growth in 1970, which was a 9% rate of growth to $1.065 trillion a year, 1065. And it actually caused a press sensation. Nope, the press could not believe, the Democrats in Congress could not believe William Proxmire and the Republicans couldn't believe that there could be 9% economic growth from 1970 to 71. And they all kind of pointed at Laffer. Well, your model said that that could happen. And Laffer had a little bit of a tough time defending that. Um, and in, in that controversy, it was learned that he didn't have a PhD because uh, he would not, he's still working on it, even as a senior professor. And he, he was kind of shredded in the press for this. And he didn't know what to do about it. He was all confused. And they kind of left him flat. And so he kind of left the Nixon White House in 1972, thinking that he might have been embarrassed by the whole thing. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about that experience, uh, you know, for him and, you know, the discovery of, of the lack of his PhD? And, and also, you know, if you could talk about, you know, what did it mean to say that he didn't have a PhD? Because he, as you say, he, he did go yeah. to, to graduate school. Yeah. So, yeah, no, we did. I neglected to mention earlier that George Stigler, who would, who would very much become a, a part of the, the dramatis persona here in 1972. So when Laffer returned to Chicago, so in 1971, he was discovered in the press furor, actually via a remark of Paul Samuelson's, that Laffer did not have a PhD. And it was true. He had worked on the PhD at Stanford and from 1963 to 1967 when he left for Chicago uh, without finishing it. And he, his dissertation was unfinished um, as of uh, 1971. And uh, he had never gotten the degree, and Chicago had tenured him. Okay, they can do that. 
Well, when he returned, Chicago demanded when, when it became a press sensation, well, wait a minute. We thought you got your PhD. It was very strange for a university to say that. You mean you didn't check or what? Um, and they, they immediately demanded that he get a PhD. Actually, George Stigler himself looked into seeing if Laffer could get fired. And Sidney Davidson, George, uh, the, the dean at the business school, was pretty sympathetic to that. Uh, but the provost, uh, James Wilson, and the president said no. Uh, Laffer was just going to finish his PhD, and we're going to forget about this. And so Laffer was allowed to stay, but he very quickly finished his PhD uh, in those months in 1971, and his committee signed it at Stanford, and he got the degree in January of 1972. But when he returned to Chicago, it was very frosty. Stigler, who had been his biggest fan at Chicago, uh, was very hostile to him after that. Uh, and he says a lot of the faculty were, and Harry Johnson really, uh, really tried to press his advantages. Some of them, you know, remain perfectly cordial. Uh, Milton Friedman, Gene Fama, um, but Mundell himself, uh, who was was a victim of some of the bullying at Chicago, he left for the University of Waterloo. I mean, there really wasn't any understanding any uh, other than that Mundell completely dominated his field of international trade, and he was the editor of the Journal of Political Economy at Chicago. And he's like, I can't handle this environment. So he left and they kind of leaving Laffer alone. Now, I do have, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but it's the way people used to do sociology. I do think there's a little bit of a Protestant Jewish thing going on here. I mean, George Stigler was Protestant. Arthur Laffer was Protestant. High class, George Stigler came from the lower classes. And I think Stigler kind of latched on to Laffer in a certain way, even though he was younger, it's kind of like, we are a kind of a, Christian redoubt amidst this kind of Jewish intellectual establishment. And Stigler really felt betrayed by his kind of Protestant buddy. Now, it's a speculation of mine, and there was no Jewish phalanx against Stigler and Laffer. That's imaginary. But I still see notes of that playing out at the Chicago drama in 1972. Yeah, no, I, I think, uh, you know, the, all the so many people in, in one room, uh, you know, or not in one room, but in one uh, in one city, it's uh, you, you you could imagine that there would be so much <laughs> that there that, that there would just be so many different reasons that would factor in. Um, though you know, I think that that's not an an unreasonable uh, guess. Um, yeah. I, you know, moving on on from there, you know, to the thing that 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 Laffer is most famous for at uh, the Laffer curve. Uh, you know, what is it? How did he devise it? And why did it become so famous? The thing that he is associated with today. Yeah, so while while Laffer was in the Nixon administration as chief economist at the OMB, um, Nixon uh, ended the gold standard uh, in in August 1971, very much with the assistance of George Shultz. And George Shultz's uh, relationship with Milton Friedman remained completely impeccable. And and Milton Friedman was very much opposed to the gold standard. So uh, uh, much on Milton Friedman's advice. I mean, there were a lot of other factors, of course. Uh, Nixon abrogated uh, the gold standard, and the, which was the foundation of the Bretton Woods Agreement in August 1971. And pretty soon, um, the, the famous stagflation of the 70s developed. Uh, you know, there was, you know, economic growth was okay in uh, 1971, 72, early 73. Uh, but prices were increasing in more than the consumer price index indicated because there was a price control officially. And so Laffer realized, oh, we're, we're entering stagflation. There are going to be recessions and there's going to be high inflation. It's exactly that after the second quarter of 1973. So um, he was interested and he did this kind of via his work uh, with the OMB 
he was interested in how you would get an economy going on a path of non-inflationary growth once again without a gold standard. And here I talk about the importance of Vietnam. I think this is uh, underappreciated in scholarship. You look at Nixon's economic planning and Johnson's economic planning, not Kennedy's so much, but LBJ's and Nixon's. They are very fearful the whole time of not having a war. And I think it's pretty clear throughout the old Johnson presidency and most of the Nixon presidency. They're worried if we don't have a war, how are we going to have full employment? If we don't have a war, how is this post-war prosperity going to keep going? And one thing that Laffer was trying to do in his model in 1970-71 was to show how the domestic economy can really roar on its own. So I might be so bald as to propose that the Laffer curve emerge, perhaps, out of the thinking that there has to be a non-military way of policy to produce real sustained economic growth. And the solution Laffer hit on was cuts in the progressive rate of the income tax, particularly at the top. So I think the ultimate origin of the Laffer curve is in the very pertinent attempt circa 1970 to find a way out of growing having the economy grow without the benefits of warfare. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating uh, theory. I'm, I'm wondering, um, as you mentioned, you have a, a, a second book that you're working on. So, so this, this book ends, um, ends in, in 1976. Uh, I was wondering if you'd talk a little about you know, where you end it here and, and sort of some of the, the things that you then hope to, to discuss uh, in your upcoming book. Yeah, so I, 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 the main time period of the book is 1966 to 76, and that essentially uh, covers, well, that, that, that covers Arthur Laffer's, uh, the meat of his academic career. I mean, he was a professor at the University of Southern California from 1976 to 1984, but he published almost nothing in the academic journals at that point. So his, the academic back history of supply-side economics, first phase, the prehistory of it, is, or those dates, 1966 to 76, that's when Mundell was active. Uh, as well. So um, what what Laffer found on, on returning to Chicago in 1972, and with his name in the press for this economic model, uh, is that he couldn't get anything published. I mean, had been you look at his publications before 1970, and the Journal of Political Economy, the American Economic Review, the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking, all that stuff, Harvard University Press. And then after 1972, he just gets rejection after rejection after rejection, just can't publish anything anywhere. And that's when he thought, look, I'm the son of a CEO. <laughs> I didn't need this academic career. Um, I have great contacts in journalism at the Wall Street Journal, which he got in Washington. I have great contacts in business. Uh, I have great contacts in politics. He would, he'd gotten to know Jack Kemp around that time, and let alone George Schultz. And he said, I don't, I don't need this academic thing. Um, and I, can, I wanna be more entrepreneurial. So I actually think and, but he, I mean, I'm very close to Arthur Laffer. So, I mean, I talk to him, you know, quite intimately you know, all the time. And he kind of uh, wonders aloud often about the choices he's made in life uh, from time to time. I quote Alec Guinness in The Bridge on the River Kwai. And, and he really second guesses himself sometimes for not taking a job offer he got from Morgan Stanley in 1965 when he got his MBA. So what would it be like if I had taken that business, Morgan Stanley, in 1975? 65. And I think, well, he did take that job, so to speak, at Morgan Stanley, and that he went into business himself after 1976. He started an investment firm and an advice firm called Laffer Associates, which exists to this day. 
And ultimately that enabled him to quit academia and to become a permanent profit-making shop, dispensing economic advice and even managing money. So I think the academic side of, of his career was an, an interregnum in the main course of his career, which really was a course in business. Um, so what the last chapters of the book are about are about how he began to figure out how he has advice for politicians, for office holders, um, that need not be marketed in the journals. So it's no accident that the Laffer Curve uh, was first uh, scrawled down on a nap and not published in the journals because he was souring on that. He couldn't publish in the journals at that time. And I think I do mention it in the book, and I talked about this on Book TV the other day, um, that the very day that Arthur Laffer made that curve on the napkin, a famous story, uh, was was surely December 6th, 1974. I think the dating on that Richard Morton Smith's new biography of Gerald Ford seems to confirm that as well. Um, and that very date was the 60-year bottom of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the the Dow hit something like 554 that day, the lowest close of the Dow between 1962 and the present. So my own kind of um, frisky conjecture is that the markets got wind of what Arthur Laffer did when he drew that curve on the napkin absolutely immediately and never saw a lower close after that point, um, having bottomed. So these are all this kind of strange transitions that were happening in the mid-70s. And then he goes on to being extremely influential in the late 70s and in the 1980s. What do you consider to be to be Laffer's key achievements um, and failures? Uh, failures uh, beyond just the, the PhD, uh, you know, kind of fiasco, <laughs> disaster. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to say that intellectually, um, well, in terms of his his own agenda, his intellectual agenda, he, his his the first part of his career was premised upon failure. He he really strove in his academic work to save the gold standard and fixed exchange rates. He really did. I mean, he staked his career on that. And he had absolutely no influence in bringing about that result. I mean, we do not have a gold standard or a fixed exchange rate outside of the Hong Kong dollar or whatever uh, these days. Now, I should also say that Arthur Laffer's views about the gold standard and fixed exchange rates may not have been as well thought out um, as he thought they were in the late 60s. By the late 1990s, I'll talk about this in the next book, by the late 1980s, he was warning people that you got to be really careful, but be, fixed exchange rates could be very bad. Uh, he told Margaret Thatcher in 1988, if you fix to the Deutschmark, um, you're going to have a huge domestic inflation. And he was exactly right. He told Ireland to punt the euro because you don't want a fixed exchange rate. If you have capital imports, uh, you're going to have a huge domestic inflation. So it's very hard now uh, to reconcile Arthur Laffer's later economics with his very kind of... Um, insistent fixed exchange rate gold standard economics of the late 1960s. So I think, I think um, it's, we, you might ask a fair question. Well, what, what is Arthur Laffer's monetary economics now? Is it the gold standard? Is it fixed exchange rates? Not sure. Uh, and that differs from his early career when he had a kind of a youthful enthusiasm for those things. My own view is that Laffer's tax and, and monetary economics have an interplay even more than perhaps he ever realized. Um, I think perhaps one of the reasons that the gold standard was broken, maybe the paramount reason the gold standard was broken, was the Kennedy tax cut. Because when the gold standard really worked, all the nations of the world had basically the same fiscal profile. Either everybody had no taxes or they had very high taxes. 
But if there are big differentials in fiscal profiles, the capital movements across borders are simply going to be gigantic, and they will break any exchange rate regime you have. So my own view now seems to be that Laffer didn't even realize it, but when Kennedy cut tax rates, 64, 65, there was such a capital shift into the United States that there's no way the current exchange system was going to break, was going to handle it. And immediately the British pound depreciated by 14% against all the British, against all the rules. And everyone interpreted it as like, oh, Bretton Woods isn't working. Nah, Bretton Woods required the same fiscal profile across all the countries. And Kennedy cut tax rates. And we saw the same thing with Reagan. So if, I might add this too. When I'm puzzled by this standard interpretation in the field, and the, and the, the standard bearer is Greta Krippner, the sociologist at the University of Michigan, um, that the Reagan tax cuts brought an unanticipated surge in capital flows into the United States to save the dollar. And that the sociolo sociological economists today say that that was completely unanticipated. That's the word they used by the Reagan people. <laughs> like, that's the very premise of supply-side economics, the very premise of Mundell's and Laffer's economics from the 60s and the 70s. Um, so they knew capital would flow if you cut tax rates. So I think, yeah, I would say intellectually, that's kind of, I might say, his, his biggest failure. He doesn't know how to defend gold or fix exchange rates based on his earlier economics. And, you know, today, even if you, uh, it, you mentioned at the end of the book that a lot of, that the, the kind of the, the unspoken source was him for a lot of this book, that, that you, you've had many conversations with him that you mentioned uh, in an interview, that you're, that you're good friends. Uh, you know, I'm wondering today, you know, what you sort of make to be his legacy and if there's, there's any lessons that, you know, that you think can be learned from his ideas and career. Well, I'm going to say methodologically, um, I am kind of old-fashioned. I hate non-contemporaneous primary sources. So, I mean, he can talk my ear off, but I have to see something that's contemporaneous to the events in question that, that confirms what he's saying. So he has a big archive here, and there are other archives elsewhere. Um, I, I think his career, I think the sociology of his career is ultimately very interesting. Um, he had to come, he had to be both a top academic and a renegade out of academia. Because if he were just a University of Chicago professor, kind of like Milton Friedman was, although Milton Friedman's biggest influence after 1976 is when he was retired and was founding the Cato Institute. If he had, There were so many college professors, university professors who were giving advice and they just weren't changing anything. I mean, Ronald Reagan was not going to listen to some, you know, publishing Economist. I mean, that was just too conventional and stagflationary. There had to be a renegade quality. And I think maybe one thing we can take from his career is that we are kind of seeing the sunset of that long kind of uh, German university model beginning about 200 years ago of there's an, a free-floating intellectual establishment in the universities. I think Arthur Laffer's career shows that there's an appetite for an independent intellectual, perhaps even one who is based on making money on the profit motive, not being endowed as in the university by somebody else's profits, but by making money yourself via your advice. I think his career does show that. And I wouldn't be surprised that if we might see more of that in the future, I think the universities, you know, uh, might be in trouble in terms of their kind of credibility. And all the good universities are in slow growth places. I mean, who moves to New Jersey these days is where Princeton is. Who moves to California these days is where Stanford is. 
Who's going to move to Massachusetts where they'd have a 9% income tax where Harvard is? I don't know. Who moves to Connecticut these days where Yale is? Nobody. Those, they cannot maintain their intellectual leadership. I'm not, I'm not even going to mention Chicago. You can't maintain your intellectual leadership if, the, if nobody moves to your place and they're all moving to Florida. So I, you know, we're going to see some big changes in how intellectuals are regarded in the future. And I think maybe his career is kind of a, an outlier of that. So we're going to have more independent, profit-minded intellectuals in the future. Well, uh, Brian, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. The book is The Emergence of Arthur Laffer, The Foundations of Supply-Side Economics in Chicago and Washington from 1966 to 1976. I definitely recommend uh, that people check it out. And if you even just heard who Arthur Laffer is and you have the, you know, the, you know, the kind of the one-dimensional view uh, of him, this is a book that will, you know, surely expose the, you know, how, how fascinating of a person he really is. So, Brian, thank you so much. Thank you very much.